0: Hi, guys. My name is Jason Mountford, and this is The Hedge. Thanks so much for joining me on this week's episode of the show. We're all about investment this week. It's an investment-heavy one. I'm joined by a really interesting guest, a guy by the name of Mark Lamonica. He is a chartered financial analyst, which, if you haven't heard of that before, is it's about as tough as it gets when it comes to investment qualifications. Um it's definitely one of the most notoriously difficult um, qualifications out there that you can get. And he works for a company called Morningstar. And we do touch on this a little bit at the start, but if you've not heard of Morningstar before, they are very well known in the investment and financial services industry. They provide a lot of, uh, of data and analytics and, and background research that people like me use to uh, you know help do our own research and understand what's going on in the markets, understand what's going on with individual funds and individual companies to obviously then pass that on to our clients. So, Mark is somebody who definitely works you know, fully in the industry. So, I thought it'd be good to get him on as somebody a little bit different from kind of the content creators and 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 um, other financial planners and, and that sort of thing that I've been having on the show so far. So, Mark's take on things is is definitely coming from a background of traditional finance and traditional investment management. And we talk through a lot of different things. Obviously, it is very investment heavy. We talk about um, how things have performed over the last couple of years, obviously been very good in, in most circumstances. We also talk about the outlook for 2022. So what Mark thinks and what Morningstar thinks is going to be the you know potential um, you know investment investment uh, environment over the next 12 24 months. We talk about uh, active versus passive, which which is a, an interesting point because Mark has a bit of a different take than than you've probably heard before. Um, and we also talk about different things like different uh, assets within a portfolio, portfolio construction. Um, crypto, we touch on that as well. So, loads of different interesting things and practical things, practical information that you can take back to, to working or when you're looking at your own portfolio. Now, you're probably going to be massively confused because obviously, I'm an Australian with an Australian accent, living and working in the UK, hosting a UK money podcast. And then we've got Mark, who is an American living in the living in Australia, Um Working in finance in Australia, but nevertheless, it will all provide a lot of value to you wherever you live and work. Now, one other thing I just wanted to mention very briefly is that throughout the conversation, Mark refers quite a lot of quite a, a number of times to the GFC. Um, And you may not have heard that term before because that is what the, uh, it stands for global financial crisis. And um, in Australia, that's basically what it's always referred to as. Um, Whereas here in the UK, I've not heard that term as much. Often things like credit crunch, or just the 2008 um, crisis and that sort of thing. So if you hear the, the term GFC, that's what he's referring to. But look, uh, I'd be really interested to get your feedback on the show. Obviously, the, this is somebody in industry. Is it a different guest than what I've had uh, on before? The, if you wanted to provide me feedback, there's basically two of the best ways to do that. Number one, jump onto my Instagram, Jason Mountford Money. Drop me a DM there. Let me know what you think. Or as always, if you wanted to find out, links to that or any more information about all the stuff that I do, you can find that at thehedge.io. But for now, let's get into today's episode. Hi, guys. Thanks very much for tuning into this week's episode of The Hedge. This week, I'm joined by Mark Lamonica from Morningstar. Mark, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. Happy to be here.
0: Good stuff. So Morningstar is a bit of a weird one, isn't it? Because within the industry, they are incredibly well-known. Anybody who works in investments, anybody who works in financial services will have heard of Morningstar, will you know, probably use a lot of the data and stuff that you guys produce. But if you stop someone on the street, even someone who invests, the chances are they probably haven't heard of Morningstar. So to start with, do you want to give us a bit of an overview of, of what who Morningstar are and what it is that you do for them?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So Think you know? As I mentioned, we uh, we do, or as you mentioned, we do support a number of different people in the financial services industry um, really are core businesses around data and research. So investment data and investment research. And we distribute that to a number of different people. So as you said, yeah, people in the industry know us. We deal with institutional investors. We certainly deal with financial advisors, financial planners. And then we also have some products that are directly um, available for individual investors. And that's actually the place that I work in. So I run our individual investor business in Australia. And that involves, yeah, providing data, research, editorial content, insights to individual investors. So yeah, I think I work in the best part of Morningstar. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's sort of our mission and the way that you know we want to engage with people and help people make better investment decisions.
0: Yeah, definitely. So it's like um, like premium content, newsletters, you know, that kind of in-depth reporting, that kind of stuff is is uh, what you have available to retail investors who just want to dig a bit deeper and, and do a bit more of their own analysis on their investments.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So we have a team of analysts here, um, well, team globally. So I'm based in Sydney. So we've got a team of analysts here in Sydney, also Europe, North America, Asia, and they do research on individual companies. And then they also do research on funds and ETFs as well. So we have a subscription product that uh, we provide that gives access to all that research. And then, yeah, we also have free products as well. So just a team of journalists who write investing insights. Um, we have podcasts, webinars, a bunch of uh, a bunch of different ways that we're reaching individual investors.
0: Great. So the question I'm going to start with is one that I'm going to... It's a very loaded question, but I'm asking you at first because the question that I get asked the most, asked the most, especially given the the last couple of years we've had, it's obviously been an environment where stock markets globally really have been very, very strong, um, even despite all the kind of macroeconomic craziness around around COVID and everything. Where do you think markets are heading in 2022? What's the Morningstar view at the moment?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I think the first thing, and I'm sure uh I'm sure people hear this all the time, is it is pretty difficult to predict where things are gonna go in, in the short run. But, you know, I will say, sort of my personal view and also Morningstar's view is that we are in a very, very challenging environment for investors. So, you know, even if we uh as you mentioned, returns have been uh have been strong over the past couple of years, but really since the GFC. Um, so we have, uh, we have had a long period of above average returns, but there's a lot of things, as you said, from sort of a macro environment that I think are challenging. We're starting to see inflation, you know, we've, uh, we've heard over and over again from central banks that this will be transitory. It seems like they're starting to back away from that a little bit, uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and starting to talk about raising interest rates to, to deal with inflation, you know, Basically, at the end of the day, we can go into some more details, we think that returns going forward are going to be lower than returns that have occurred, certainly since the GFC. So I think one of the unfortunate parts of math is that if you have a bunch of years of above average returns, in order to get back to average, you're going to have to have below average returns. Now, that could happen in many different ways, right? It could happen just with lower returns than what we've experienced lately going forward could certainly happen with a correction or moving into a bear market. So it's hard to predict exactly how that's going to happen. But we think if you look out over the next decade that we're going to see return levels that are below what I think a lot of investors, especially new investors, have come to expect.
0: Mm. And it's, it's interesting to hear you say that it's a challenging investment environment because I think that's where there's so much value. And I think for people who haven't don't understand the industry that well, kind of where I sit is sort of between guys like yourself, Mark, and the client. You know, the idea is that you provide all of that um, in-depth research. You tell us what you think is going to happen in the future and then our job is to kind of translate into how that's going to impact our clients and how our clients should be using their own specific money. And it's interesting that you say that you that the kind of view is that it's, gonna, it's a challenging market because obviously if you're using returns as the only benchmark, you'd think, what's this going on about? It's not challenging at all. If you, unless you're invested in crypto, you're absolutely killing it. And I think that's, that's a really interesting view because I think when you're investing, it can be very easy to always fall into that trap of looking at what's this week been like, what's this quarter been like, what's this year been like. But that's the whole point, isn't it? That that's not where you, your future returns aren't coming from last quarter. Your future returns are coming with all the macroeconomic background and how that's going to play out over the next two, five, ten years.
1: Yeah, yeah, no exactly. And so, you know, I think uh I think probably not top of mind for many people, but <laughs> yeah. if we look at if we look at interest rates and we look at expected future returns for bonds, I mean, they are low, right? Mm. So, you know, at the end of the day, the way that you make money investing in in fixed interest is if interest rates go down, prices go up. Well, they're not most likely going to go down from where we mm. are now. The other of course place you get return in fixed interest is you get paid interest, well, you're not getting any interest. So that's a terrible place to be. If we start looking at shares, you're right, that returns have been very strong. But if we sort of break down an individual company and look at sort of the three areas you get returns from. So one is dividend yields, all right? So you do get paid a dividend. Now, yields are at historic lows at this point. So you're just not getting paid a lot in income from Mm -hmm. owning a share. The other place is valuation levels. So changes in valuation levels drive returns. So if somebody's willing to pay more for a particular share, that's good for you, right? So Mm -hmm. that will drive returns. And that's what we've seen as valuation levels have gone up in the market. We've seen that return accrue to people. And then the third area, of course, is just growth, right? If you own a company and the company is growing earnings, even if it's the same valuation level, that's an opportunity as well. Well, You know, I think if we look at historically high valuation levels, there probably isn't a lot of room, even if they don't come Mm -hmm. down, there isn't a lot of room for them to go up. Dividend yields are very low Um, and it's a challenging economic environment, right? It's challenging for companies to grow in an inflationary environment. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think that's, I guess, where we see challenging a challenging environment. As you said, investing is all about looking forward. Um, so it doesn't really matter what's happened in the past. We try to Mm. use the past to inform what's going to happen in the future, but it's all about going forward. And I think, yeah, it's a pretty challenging environment going forward.
0: Yeah. You mentioned fixed interest there, which is a question I wanted to ask you about. Um, as you say, it's really challenging at the moment, especially it's been a difficult environment for fixed interest for quite some time, really from, from where I've been sitting. Um, but, It's just kind of ratcheted up big time with the increase of inflation because, obviously, especially if you're looking at the yields on those, they are significantly below. They have been below inflation for a while, but all of a sudden they're really significantly below inflation. What is an investor going, what should an investor be doing with that fixed interest allocation? Because something that I'm struggling with at the moment is you know, you've got these clients who the whole point of having fixed income having fixed interest in a portfolio is to manage the risk within it right and, and obviously you know that um and so if you're getting have a client who's fairly risk averse the portfolio is generally going to be quite heavily allocated to fixed interest but we're in an environment where that feels like a bad a bad decision to make a bad investment um a place to put uh, put your money what's what kind of alternatives are are being looked out there in the space that has some of the same sort of characteristics as fixed interest, but doesn't have as many of the potential headwinds? Is there anything out there, or is it just like you say, the next ten years is not going to be pretty?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's nothing. So, as as you said, right? Like, if we talk about risk, we're talking about volatility, yeah, right? So yeah, we're talking exactly, about yeah. portfolios bouncing around. You know, the only, and I, I think a lot of people have sort of moved into. Um, sort of shorter duration or fixed interest that has that is just going to mature faster at the end of the day. Nobody wants to lock themselves up in some even 10 years at this point. Mm. So yeah, I mean, I think cash and moving to very short-term fixed interest seems to be the logical thing to do. Now, obviously, as you said, we are losing money doing that with inflation, um, particularly cash. I think a lot of people do not want to hold cash now. But the only thing I would say is that if markets pull back, at least that cash is something you can use if there are better opportunities in the future. But mm. yeah, no, it's a it's a really really challenging environment. I think particularly for people that are transitioning into retirement right now, um, mm-hmm. you know that uh, as you know, I'm sure you're aware those first years as you move into retirement are really really critical, right? So that's that's where a poor performing market, if you retire into a bear market, it really impacts, um, well, basically increases your longevity risk that so you're going to outlive. Yeah, it. yeah. And so, yeah, I, you know, personally, I'm holding more cash, thinking there are going to be opportunities. I have a ways to go till retirement. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's uh, it's tricky. There isn't really much of an alternative. And that's why I think everyone's putting money into shares.
0: yeah. So we it's you kinda of get to the, the um you can kinda of get to the place of it's the what what's what's the phrase? like um that Tina the best the best, the best no worst op- sorry?
1: Yeah. I was just saying what what is it? It's like Tina, there is no alternative, is that yeah, what you yeah. saying? Yeah. Or the best worst option or something like yeah. that. I
0: think that's what I was thinking of. Um yeah. so you mentioned inflation there before, as you said, the that the, the Fed particularly started out with with the uh, with the kind of line that it was transitory and it was due to COVID and they didn't expect it to last very long that as you said changed very quickly they're they're backing away from that already um what's what's your view on inflation obviously we are still in the middle of uh, here in the UK you know they're talking about it another lockdown next week um yeah I think places like Canada I believe are still very very heavily restricted some states of the US as well um What's your view on inflation? What kind of time frame do you think? Because I mean, they're projecting it to be like six percent here in, in in the UK And actually, I know Australia's not quite so bad. U.S. is is even worse. How long do you think it is actually going to last?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and this is obviously where I'll defer to some of the uh, the experts at Morningstar. But you know, I think you know our our economists have been doing the same thing. I think a lot of the uh, a lot of the central banks have been doing and sort of kept pushing out that amount or the amount of time that they think this is going to last. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we still see long-term inflation at 2.2%. Um, but we think there's going to be a period over the next year or so where, yeah, as you said, it's going to be, it's going to be as high as basically stay the same levels that we've seen reported. So yeah, as you said, like up over 6% we're seeing in, uh, in the U S and the UK and yeah, Australia is a little bit lower, um, at this point, but yeah, we'll see what happens. So, um, Hmm i think i I think at the end of the day, nobody knows um like there certainly seem to be a lot of uh you know inflation's one of those things where once it catches on it's hard to uh it's hard to have it go away right so as soon as people start demanding higher wages to respond yeah. to higher prices, then all of a sudden prices go higher again, and we just get into this cycle so i think uh I think there's obviously a lot of concern that investors in general have and central banks are starting to have over over inflation
0: so that's sort of returns, which aren't looking super rosy, what do you think are the kind of main themes in investments we're going to see over the next year or two?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a good, uh, it's a good question. So, um, you know, as interest rates go up, and we've started, we've started to see this, um, but this could be a time where we're actually going to see basically what's happened since the GFC large cap US growth has been the place that you've wanted to be. And it seems Mm -hmm. like we could be moving into an environment where there could be more of a rotation um, at at this point. So interest rates going up are going to impact growth investments. So, you know, very simply, as we were talking about before, anytime you're evaluating an investment, you don't really care what it's done in the past. You care what that company is going to earn in the future. And as investors, we forecast out Those cash flows, and then we discount them back to the present day. So, growth shares, which are supposed to have more growth into the future, higher interest rates have a bigger impact because it's that discount rate that's going to change. So, we're starting to see, and even if you go back and look at past month, past six weeks, those sort of darlings of the market that have driven, you know, really driven US indexes um which have been kind of the best performing since the GFC have driven US indexes are starting to come back to Earth. And so, you know, people are talking about, and once again, I don't know the answer. People are talking about rotations back into value potentially. Um there's talk of when we start thinking about, you know, higher interest rates, inflation either listed property, infrastructure, traditionally have performed pretty well. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, it just seems like this playbook that people have followed since the GFC, sort of momentum, large cap growth in the US, tech companies, seems like maybe that's gonna change. Um, So I think think it'll be an interesting time because you'll see a lot of volatility as investors, particularly professional investors, are readjusting their portfolios if they think that that environment's gonna change.
0: Okay. Interesting. So you meant infrastructure then. Um, one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about is ESG investing and that those those two those two potentially kind of marry up. What were what do you see happening in, in the ESG space? There's been a lot of talk around it the last especially the last i I feel like if I'd gone back a year ago and someone had asked me um, you know, how many clients speak to you about ESG, it would be, you know, hard literally hardly any, maybe like one or two a year. And I feel like this year it's almost like every second client is is bringing it up? Is that a similar trend that you're seeing across the industry at the moment?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Like I, I would say that Australia is probably a little bit behind um so if we sort the of call the call
0: too, too many uh, guys working in mining i suppose exactly exactly <laughs>
1: but yeah if we look at esg adoption like europe is obviously sort of leading uh leading the world australia is probably on the other side of things but um yeah no esg is something that is coming up a lot and i think there's there's kind of two sides to it and before we get into the specifics there's certainly people that are trying to invest their values um so there's always been that side but i think other investors who don't necessarily care um, and are not looking to um, invest according to their values or do not have values that, that align with some of these stuff, they're starting to care now, too, because they're worried about returns. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're certainly seeing that around uh Around yeah, sort of fossil fuel companies, things like that, that traditionally people would hold in their portfolios, and now they're very worried. Um, so they're very worried that, uh, regardless of how they feel about climate change, they're very worried that they're going to have poor returns. Um, so yeah, the issue space—it's—it's it's interesting. Um, you know, I think uh, I think that there are still a lot of different approaches to ESG that probably isn't appreciated. Mm. Um, you know, there's, there's the approach certainly of investing your values. So more of like an exclusionary screen that is, put on, uh, that is put on a set of investments. But there's also just this notion that ESG risk is a risk and needs to be accounted for, but that there would be a price that you would buy something. Um, so there would be a price you would buy a coal company. Um, as yep. long as that risk, just like any other risk in investing, as long as you are getting compensated for taking on that risk. Um, so I think it's I think sort of that difference in ESG is probably not appreciated. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's certainly a fast evolving space, and yeah, we hear about it all the time.
0: yeah, I, yeah, i, I think I agree. I think it's just such a minefield. like uh, from what I've the conversations I have with clients, the vast majority of people haven't really thought that deeply into it. you know, that they know that they, you know they have a social conscience they want to make sure that their investments aren't um, you know increasing for uh, increasing carbon emissions and that sort of thing but in, in a lot of ways it doesn't almost matter what's in the portfolio as long as you can kind of say yeah there's a you know it's a socially responsible portfolio i don't think most people really care about what that actually means, um, which I think is something that's, I guess, only going to be worked work through as there are more products available but um, available on the market. But um, there's also the whole, the aspect that I often talk about is the idea of activist invest as well, because the issue that you have is, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, mining companies, coal companies you know, if if we got to a point where the market was perfectly efficient in that everybody who cared about those things didn't invest in them and vice versa, you would just have a bunch of people running those companies who don't give a shit about the environment. And do you really, is that the situation you really want to be in? You know, ideally you want some powerful people on the board who, or with a, a large shareholding who can actually try and push the company in a, in a slightly more green direction where they can, I suppose.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, because you know I think the thing is that you know not investing in these companies doesn't make it go away. Like you know yeah. the reason the reason there are still and you know in Australia that's certainly true the reason there are still coal miners are because there's demand for coal. Yeah, and <laughs> so you know there uh, there are certainly things I think as you said from an activist stand uh, point of view that uh, that can be done to try to remove some of the impact of uh of well whatever whatever fossil fuel or whatever whatever issue you're talking about but yeah it doesn't it doesn't make the companies inherently go away um it makes them yeah less responsive as you said and uh and then they can just sort of just focus completely on a profit motive right and i don't think anyone really wants that
0: no no it's not good for any of us um if you're looking at retail investors, what I've tended to notice in the past is that the the higher the markets go, the more money flows into the markets. That There's almost an inverse relationship, which is obviously normally when we have somebody like yourself standing up at a conference talking to us saying, what are you guys doing? That should be the other way around. Are you seeing um, inflows at the moment at high levels or is it a different trend that you're seeing?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it's a good uh I, I mean, I think if we if we start to look at and once again, it's very difficult for anyone to call a market peak or say that we're in a bubble and you know, who knows how long this will last. But yeah, there are some worrying signs right now and one of them is, is inflows. So we uh, we did sort of a on investing compass our podcast. We did just a preview of 2022 and sort of a look at a look at markets and gathered a couple stats and so just going through looking at some stuff. So Bank of America put out in November, they put out um, this piece of research looking at basically inflows globally into uh, into equity funds. Right. So as you said, like basically mm-hmm. you know retail investors putting money into shares. And yeah, hit a trillion dollars, a trillion US dollars in November, um, mm-hmm. which is kind of shockingly high if you go back and look right. at history. So, you know, mm-hmm. and this is obviously this is net inflows. So people take money out as well. Yeah. But yeah, the second highest year was 2017. And that was 400 billion. Um, really? So it's a <laughs> wow. huge amount of money. And, yeah. you know, I think one of the concerns is that every single if you go back and study history and you look at every single sort of market bubble before the market went down significantly, it was capped off by these huge inflows from retail investors of chasing returns. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's such a I don't know, it's such a difficult environment, I think, because, you know, a lot more people are interested in investing. And that's great, um, you know, sort Mm -hmm. of with covid lockdowns and the stories everywhere right with covid lockdowns starting in 2020 a lot of people sort of turned to investing and that's and that's great yeah. but this is all this money going in they're chasing returns and historically that has never been a good indicator for what's going to happen
0: mm. one of the other areas that we've obviously seen in that same period is cryptocurrency going from Something that some nerds toyed around with on their on their computers. To I watched an AFL game, an Australian rules football game, you know, the the grand final actually, and like the whole boundary was like advertisements for crypto exchanges. Um, what, as someone who is deep into the regulated financial services industry, you know, who at the moment don't really get anywhere near crypto, what's kind of the thought around? how that's going to be approached from a from a mainstream finance perspective because obviously it can't be touched unless it's regulated it's 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 not something that that financial advisors or or you know analysts like you guys can really get too involved with um what's what's your take on it do you think we're going to see more regulation around it in not just obviously the uk but australia the us is starting slowly a couple of futures funds there what's what's your take on that
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, we we will see. What what I would say is we're starting to see more products, right? So we're starting yeah. to see ETFs um that aren't necessarily as you said tracking the underlying currency, you know, they're really tracking futures markets. Uh and part of that is obviously the problem as you said that how do you from a technical sense, how do you custody Bitcoin, for example, when uh someone can run off with the key and they just and it's theirs um Mm -hmm. so there's all these challenges that i think that i think people are going through um that the industry is going through to try to figure out a way to kind of get these products out there so we've seen yeah crypto-based products based on futures we've seen crypto-based products based on quote-unquote crypto infrastructure so basically like thematic etfs um you know the biggest launch in australian etf history happened last month with a uh with one of those crypto products that looks at that holds companies that have something to do with crypto. So there's definitely a lot of like,
0: like mining companies and stuff like that. Exactly.
1: Yeah. 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 And there's, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of interest. Like we, we generally think those are not great products to get into, mm-hmm. um, you know, ultimately. And, you know, we don't have an opinion, as you said, we don't have a strict opinion on cryptocurrencies, but you know, I think if you're going to own a cryptocurrency, you should own the cryptocurrency <laughs> and not screw around with these other products um, where there's, you know, big differences between if we look at the futures based products, big differences between the price of futures and the price of the underlying, whether it's Bitcoin or whatever other coin it is. Um, and yeah, we don't think these thematic ETFs are really great places for investors to be either, um, you know, on a. Personal level, you know, I I haven't figured out a reason to buy crypto yet. I can't figure out sort of I I I am more conservative, you know. I do look at fundamentals when investing, and I can't really figure out the fundamental there. Um, you know, there's there's nothing to value. There is there's no cash flows. And I know uh, I know a lot of people are probably rolling their eyes as they hear me say that, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I think uh, I think it'll be interesting to see if it gets to a point where there's more regulation and does that regulation take away all of the supposed advantages of these uh, of these cryptocurrencies.
0: Mm. it to be honest it's a really tough topic to understand number one because I'm not gonna you know the white papers for a lot of these are like hundreds of pages long and who's got time to read all those and, and yet let alone understand it because I'm not someone who can understand code and and you know secure the, the security aspects and those sorts of things but it's really hard to actually get to the the actual bottom of of what the real situation is with so many of these things? Because cryptocurrency, it's like a religion, right? Or it's like politics in the U.S. It's like you're either for it, and then you're really for it, and you're not going to hear any argument against. Or often, uh, people, especially who are creating content or or putting out, um, you know, articles, writing about this sort of thing, are the up or the other side. So it's a really tough one to actually understand. And it's it's this unfortunate situation where companies or um, Intermediaries like, like Morningstar or, um, you know, re- research houses really are the ones you want looking into this stuff in a bit more detail and providing that, that level of, of, of data that you can actually look at and make a decision on. But whilst it stays unregulated, it's very hard to actually have companies with the resources who have companies with the resources to be able to look into this stuff properly. They, they can't do it. It's a, it's, a, it's a weird situation, yet people are investing in it like, like crazy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think I've, I've never, I've never really had a conversation with anybody who is an adherent that has given me a reason to invest in it other than it's going to go up. And, you know, this sort of demand driven and hey, that works, right? At the end of the day, like, you know, we know that that certainly, that certainly drives investors, like, but nobody's been able to give me a reason. Like, you know, I, I I understand, like, yes, I think there's a lot of advantages to it in terms of sort of cross-border transfers and, and everything else. I, I sort of, I understand that concept. I also understand that it's not safe and that, you know, 25% of it, it has been lost. And, mm. you know, there are a lot of problems with it as well. Now, I don't know how sort of the advantages and disadvantages play out there, um, but, I'm not exactly sure how we get to a spot where a research house could come up with an opinion, right? So like, you know, if yeah. we look at if we look at currencies you know, we can sit there and look over hundreds of years and figure out that, OK, if we're looking at the Aussie dollar versus the pound, for example, we can look at relative interest rates. We can look at trade. There's all sorts of, you know, historic correlations that we can look to to sort of guide where we think different currencies will move relative to each other. There isn't anything at this point. Yeah. Bitcoin, the history. There's just not enough history.
0: Yeah, true. It's an interesting one. I um I had Peter McCormack on the show a few weeks back, who hosts the What Bitcoin Did podcast, it's a really, um big, big point Bitcoin podcast, and um he was good. It was interesting talking to him. He's quite he's not a technical person. He's level headed person, and he he gave me quite a bit to think about. So it'd be one that I've got value from. Anyway, um the environment, as you said, it's really challenging. Looking well, it's looking very very challenging going forward. Um, do you think? What we're expected to see over the next five, 10 years lends itself more towards active investing versus passive investing, or does it not really change how things will work?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, so I, I think once again, if we go back and kinda of look at what happened what's happened from the GFC, right, we've seen this huge uptake. So passive investing obviously had been sort of steadily gaining, um, if we want to talk about sort of share of share of investors. And then it's sort of mm-hmm. exploded in popularity after the GFC. Now, you know, and certainly, you know, at Morningstar, the funds and ETFs that we evaluate, like cost and, you know, the fees that you pay are a you know, huge side of that, a huge side of our analyst evaluation. But I think we also need to look back on that environment and look at what happened. So, you know, most indexes in the world are market cap weighted, um, simply Mm -hmm. meaning that a bigger company and bigger as measured by how much they're worth, so shares times number of shares out there times share price, So bigger companies make up more of the index. Now, we've had this environment where, once again, particularly U.S. tech shares have done very, very well. So they've become bigger parts of the index. They've continued to do well. They've continued to drive these indexes higher. So, you know, if you go back and look at how the average share, if we look at the U.S., for example, the S&P 500, so 500 biggest companies in the U.S., look at how the average share has performed versus the index. The index has done better. Um, because it's right, getting okay. dragged yeah. higher by these giant companies, the ones you hear mm-hmm. about that are seemingly hitting new like market cap. Like, you know, Apple, what was it? It was like a year ago, Apple hit a trillion, and now they're talking about it's getting close to $3 trillion. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you've had these giant companies continue to do well. And I think we do have to acknowledge that that has dragged these indexes higher, particularly the U.S. Mm. Um, so if we look at where you sort of invested since the GFC, it's the U.S., um and so you know i think a lot of the money that's flowing into passive has and we have to acknowledge it has um done well because of this market environment we've been in where historically we've seen more of like a reversion to the mean where there's been rotations um so some companies did well for a while then other companies would do well and index doesn't perform as well in that environment um so yeah it'll be interesting like i think I, i think active is not dead Um, I think that, you know, if we see, as we were talking about earlier, if we see sort of a different investing environment going forward, then perhaps that's an opportunity for active managers. Mm -hmm. Um, because once again, many active managers, all they had to do was invest in those giant tech companies and and that was kind of it. So yeah, you know, active always says the sales pitch that you always get from active is that, you know, during down markets, during more challenging environments, Active is the place to be, so we'll see, but you know professionals have done a lot of the things that we were talking about individuals have done as well right that have chased mm. returns and uh and put money in at exactly the wrong part uh, uh, wrong time so yeah we'll see what uh we'll see what happens but i think uh I think this is, this might be active manager's last big chance um if they, yeah. they go south and they uh and they don't perform well that could uh that could be pretty bad
0: Yeah. Mm. It's interesting, actually, it reminds me of um i've I've been in the u k now for uh, just over four years. um I was an advisor in Australia before that and um the the companies that are the kind of top of the index in Australia are obviously very different companies to that. you know they're you know banks and miners basically, um, some other oil and gas companies like woodside but but broadly speaking, very mature businesses that don't have massive growth trajectories and i you know I remember from my time there that actually um a lot of the the actively managed funds that actually do very well are the ones that actually excluded those. So the Benelong X20 is one that comes to mind, where you know it looked at the Footy, uh, sorry, the um, ASX200, but actually took out those top twenty for for that reason that they are so big, they get to a point where it takes so much to move them that actually you're scuppering a lot of your potential, your, your growth potential, really. So, but you know, maybe I guess that it could be a similar situation where once a company's three trillion dollars, it takes a lot to move that. You know, to move that ten percent, it takes a lot of new money flowing in, doesn't it?
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and also, yeah, the companies have gotten like, you know, how many more iPhones can you sell?
0: Yeah. Um, at yeah. the end
1: of the day, but yeah, no, it is. I, I think it's an underappreciated part of passive investing is that you know you do need to look at look at that index that you're investing in. Um, so the Australia example is a great one. So as you said, yeah, it's banks and miners here. Uh, miners are going to get bigger, um, just because with some of the stuff that's going on with BHP and basically sort of getting rid of their London listing, um, it's going to be an even bigger part of the index here. Now, potentially, if interest rates start going up, banks aren't a bad place to be. Um, mm-hmm. They perform pretty well in that environment, so maybe maybe it's a time for the Aussie indexes. But yeah, if you just sit there and look at if you look at the index, that's what you're getting in Australia, right? You're getting a lot of very domestically focused companies. Um, more of their revenue comes from Australia than if you invest in the U.S. or the U.K., for example, or you had more global companies. So, yeah, it's always really important to look at those indexes um, and figure out what are the specific sectors that are that make up the indexes, what are the companies. And so, yeah, it's probably an underappreciated part of passive investing. People think it's just, up; oh, you're just getting the average, which technically you are, but figure out what, what that means going forward.
0: Do you think we'll get to the point to a point where we'll see a wider um, level of indexes being used? Because you know this is another point that I think gets missed a lot is that an index is just something that a company somewhere has devised, and they, they have a a methodology behind it. But it's not the government doesn't make up an index, the regulator doesn't make up an index. Do you think we'll get to a point where if someone's looking to invest in the U.S., for example? they won't just look at the S&P 500, that maybe we'll see more indexes pop up that can say that they are passive investments, but potentially have higher, well, can can ride the coattails of passive investing, even though maybe they actually narrow that universe quite a lot?
1: Yeah, you know, we're starting to, we're starting to see it. So, you know, we've sort of seen this explosion of, you know, what we call a thematic ETF, um, which is just like, you know, and we're not, we're not very positive on most of them, but, you know, it's, in mm-hmm. many ways, it's kind of like a marketing invention, right? Whereas yeah. you said, an index, an index is just made up. You know, we have, you know, one of the worst ones, there's there's one in Australia and, you know, there's a ETF product in the US as well, um, following this FANG index, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. which has 10 shares in it. <laughs> it is created, a committee picks the 10 companies that go in there that have FANG-like quality. So, yeah okay. you know, basically just saying that they are they are tech stocks that have a lot of momentum and have done well and it's this terrible product but people but they say it's marketed as a passive investment I'm mm. like well how is this how is this passive right it's following the <laughs> committee as well yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's like if i'm an active manager i create my own index which is whatever shares i want to put in it and then i sell <laughs> it as passive um, like yeah. this is this is actively managed but yeah mm. you're right there are uh, there are a lot of quote unquote passive products that have come out following these themes but yeah i mean as you as you said so that's that's one extreme but the other side is just simply like an equal weighted index Right. So mm-hmm. instead of like, if we look at the SP 500, instead of it being dominated by, you know, Apple and Google, et cetera, like it's just all 500 shares get an equal amount of money. And that's what I think most people probably intuitively think they're getting when they invest in a passive index. I think it's probably underappreciated, mm-hmm. um, especially with. I guess less sophisticated investors what an index is as you said so yeah. yeah i think we'll see i think we'll see more of them we see uh we certainly see indexes that are factor indexes so a value index or a growth index so yeah i guess all forms of passive investing but that might be the industry's answer to everyone moving away from active is just sort of selling it to people in a uh, in a slightly different yeah. way
0: yeah definitely i think it's going to be a very interesting few years uh, i mean if you're going back over the last 15, 20 years, do you think we've seen the GFC was massive? How do you think this compares to the GFC? Is this like as unique of a as a market as, as we've seen since then? Or is it just seem like that because we're in the middle of it at the moment?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... Uh yeah, it's hard to say because you know people obviously always will sit around and say, as I said in the beginning, how challenging this is. I think yeah. uh, I think everyone likes to think that the time that they're living in currently is uh, is full of challenges that nobody ever faced before. Um, you know, I think uh, I think if we go back and we look at kind of where we are. GFC, I would say, is a little bit different, um, but if we go back and look from like a valuation perspective, it does feel a little bit like sort of the two thousand like tech bubble, um, which uh, I was in uni during that and like first started uh, started investing, and I just I see a lot of similar behavior. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we, we hear all these things about how, you know, investing this Robin Hood effect that investing has been democratized. Well, you know, I remember back in 2000, that was really when they started with any online investing. Um, yeah. So, you know, that uh, that is when that whole democratization of investing started if we go back to the 70s and kind of the nifty 50 crash that occurred like that was democratized investing because funds became really popular um you know same thing if we go back to 1929 they thought that was democratized because there was a telegraph and you could go sit there and see tickers in san francisco and what was happening in new york so you know we see the same things all the same things happen right like There's this notion that investing's democratized. There are all these new investors that rush into the market. Valuation levels get historically high. You see all these signs of speculation, which we're seeing with options trading going up significantly, um, with margin lending going up significantly. So all the same things are happening. So I don't think it's necessarily historically unprecedented, I think. And I have no idea what's going to happen. So obviously, you know, the markets can continue to go up. But I do think that, you know, there's a pretty good case right now um, where maybe a couple of years from now we can look back on it and say it was obvious. It was obvious. Yeah. There was a it's always the
0: why, isn't it? Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Right. And everything is obviously there's that Warren Buffett quote about how I, I don't know it word for word but yeah everything in the rear view mirror looks pretty obvious right yeah. um so yeah we'll see i think that there's uh i think that there's certainly a lot of signs that uh that something is amiss um and sort of a lot of investor complacency and even you know i follow a lot of message boards um investing message boards I, I'd like to say because of my job, but maybe just because I'm uh, I'm interested. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, there there just seems to be a lot of stuff that I'm hearing on there. And this is, you know, all the stuff around margin lending options, those are that's data we can look at. But just sort of people's attitude just seems like there's this complacency where the market goes down a couple percent, you hear all the same things, buy the dip um uh, yep. shares are on yep. sale and i'm like well they're not on sale it's gone down two percent <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. so that's not a sale so it just seems i i guess i'm just sort of worried in general about yeah this complacency and sort of investor attitudes that i don't think with with will stand up well to real actual losses to a correction to a bear market and that's when you get the same thing happening on the other side right this sort of acceleration of fear that leads to huge mm-hmm. drops
0: hmm. Well, hopefully we've uh, sufficiently scared everybody um, so far with our conversation today. I think there's some really important stuff in there though, and I think it's always about, you know, you want to have a pessimistic view in a lot of ways when it comes to investing, don't you? Because you know whether you're talking about the actual investment decisions you're making, or whether you're making plans for your retirement, you know, you'd rather be pessimistic and then overshoot than than the other way. Um, anybody who is listening to this and, and thinking that it's not a good time to invest, you know, keep in mind that that. Mark and myself, as he said a number of times, we don't know what the future is going to look like. You know, even if the um, you know the valuations are ridiculous, the market can. Was, was, it's another Warren Buffett quote. I think it's the, the market can remain irrational longer than you can say solvent. You know, so last week I actually did an episode um, which was titled "Should You Invest in All-Time Highs at All-Time Highs?" So if you've not listened to that one, go back have a listen. Talk about, about things like phasing your money in pound cost averaging, averaging, dollar cost averaging, those sorts of things. So um, some useful stuff there for you. Mark, it's been really good to have you on the show. I really appreciated your your input today on some of those investing topics. Um, And just, yeah, thanks so much for your time.
1: Yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate it.
0: So there you go, guys, that is this week's interview. Um, I thought that was a good one. I thought there's some interesting stuff in there, particularly the take on the active versus passive debate. You know, it's something that I hadn't, um, I hadn't had kind of uh, articulated in in that kind of way. And it's given me a lot to think about there. So that's something I'm gonna think a little bit more on over the next few weeks. Um, And it'll be interesting to see how that kind of plays out going forward. So I hope you guys found some value in that episode. As always, I would love to hear your feedback. a couple of things to to touch on just um, before we finish up today. Obviously, um, if you have that feedback, as I said at the outset, best places to get in touch with me is on Instagram. Jason Mountainford Money is my handle on there, or you can find the link to that and the link to everything else that I do, the blog, blog articles that I write, um, the the free ebook Modern Investing Fundamentals, all that stuff you can find at thehedge.io. Also putting a bit of a call out, if you would like to work with me, I have um, something that I want to increase this year in 2022 is the work that I'm doing with people. So obviously that includes if you'd like to talk about your finances and that sort of thing. I'm always open for that. You can always get in touch with me if you'd like to, to have a, an initial chat with me, no cost or anything like that. Um, but also if you have a, a company, if you'd like me to do um, sort of, sort of things like webinars, seminars, um, any public speaking around investments, around money, money management, that sort of thing. Um, if you'd like me to work with your team or if you've got any... Um, any kind of aspect of your life where you think there'd be some value in some in a presentation or, or some information about, um, about money and investments, then please do get in touch with me as well. Again, best way to do that is just at thehedge.io. Um, thanks very much for tuning into this week's episode of the show, guys. I hope you enjoyed it and I look forward to speaking to you next week.